Well, good morning. All right, it's a pleasure to see all of you today. As Christian said, my name is Scott Porter. Um, thank you, Christian, for praying for us as elders. I serve as one of the elders here. Um, it's my pleasure to do so, and it's my pleasure today to uh, teach through God's Word to the church that I love. If you are here as a visitor, I would just welcome you to church. Thank you for choosing to uh, spend the morning with us, and if you are new to the church and just trying to figure us out, welcome as well, and if you are here as a mainstay here at Flagstaff Christian Fellowship, uh, welcome also. If, uh, if you need a Bible, why don't you just throw your hand up, Bobby will, uh, will get you one. That's yours to keep. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep it or, or give it away if you wish. So I would encourage you to uh, find your way in the New Testament to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. And as I was uh, thinking about what text to teach through, I got to thinking how it was always one of the things I wanted to do when I was leading middle school would be to teach through 1 Peter, and I never did. So I thought to myself, well, let's uh, teach from 1 Peter today. So as I was going through 1 and 2 Peter again and again, I honestly was just arrested by uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, and I couldn't get past that, so that's where we will be today. Uh, we live our Christian lives in a world that is not our home. This world is marked by the effects of sin, is contaminated by sin. And we as believers, we long for that day. We long for that day when those effects of sin will be no longer. But until then, we have trials and suffering in our lives. And oftentimes, these trials, they have a way of, uh, of eclipsing our view of King Jesus. And therefore, sometimes we need to be reminded of the glories that await those who are in Christ, as the Bible describes, in Christ. And we have such a reminder here today in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 3 through 9. So let me read the text and then we'll pray. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice 
with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's bow our heads and hearts, uh, just commit this time to the Lord. Father, we, we come to you this morning. We recognize that a Sunday morning can be filled with distractions that come in many forms. Uh, there are those among us today who are carrying heavy burdens. Father, um, I pray on behalf of us that you can just fix our heads and our hearts on Jesus this morning. Lord, I, um, I ask, as I have asked in private, and I ask in public, Father, that you just work through me this morning. This is not me, it's your word that has the power to save. And I pray that you may do that today. Father, I, I pray for any here who do not know you as Lord and Savior, that you may, through the proclamation of your word, uh, quicken a dead heart and uh, make, make hearts alive to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Protect me from error in my teaching. If there's anything I say that is not accord with your word, I pray it not even get, not even get a hearing. But to what I say that is, represents fidelity to scripture, I pray you plant it deep in our hearts to the end of uh, growing in us a deeper gratitude for what you have done in Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so uh, allow me to put in front of us what I would like us to take away from our time this morning. It comes in the form of a sentence. When we are called to endure trials, we need to focus on our eternal security as our source of joy. So when we as believers are called to endure trials, we need to focus on our eternal security as our source of joy. I'll spend a few minutes putting 1 Peter into context, and then we'll move into our three points this morning, and our three points will be this. God's election of his children should result in a living hope. That would be verse 3 through 5. God's election of his children should result in a living hope. Second point will be trials need to be viewed in light of Jesus' future promised return. That'll be verse 6 and 7. Trials in our lives need to be viewed in light of Jesus' future promised return. And then um, our third and shortest point will be by faith. Our future completed salvation is assured. That'll be 8 and 9. By faith, our future completed salvation is assured. So the author of this letter is the Apostle Peter. Now we meet a simple fisherman early in the gospel accounts by the name of Simon. And as has happened to others in scripture, God, um, others who God has selected to be a significant part in bringing out God's redemptive plan, Jesus changed his name. Think Abram being changed to Abraham. Think Jacob name being changed to Israel in the Old Testament. 
Jesus immediately changed Simon's name to Peter. So early on in that intimate uh, relationship between Jesus and Peter, we see a foretaste of the significance that Peter will play in the generation after Jesus' uh, resurrection. So this uh, fisherman turned disciple, disciple turned apostle, is a pillar of influence in the early church. Peter's relationship to Jesus was uh, one that was marked by being drawn close to Jesus, closest to Jesus in that special uh, discipling relationship, along with James and John. For example, it was these three disciples that Jesus brought with him up on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's in Matthew 17 and, and Mark 9. And it was that event of the transfiguration that Peter referred to uh, in 2 Peter 1, 17 and 18, as Peter sought to establish that apostolic authority, he referred back to the Mount of Transfiguration. It was Peter, when asked by our Lord Jesus, Jesus asked, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's, That's in Matthew 6, or 16 rather. And Peter got it right. Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, Jesus' response was affirming to Peter. He called him blessed for that. And and Jesus' response was, was that proclamation, Peter? He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. After Jesus' ascension on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended on that uh, group of believers in the uh, upper room, or not the upper room, an upper room, I should say, that, that that group that was, they were just struck with anxiety. It was Peter. It was Peter who was the first one to to bust out the door, run out into the street, give his sermon on Pentecost that lifted up and exalted the the risen Lord Jesus Christ. 3,000 people got saved that day. The church was born. But uh, lest we think that Peter was without uh, fault, wasn't perfect. This was the same Peter who denied Jesus three times, as Jesus predicted, just prior to his crucifixion. We also see uh, Peter, his kind of uh, impulsive personality, as he took a swing at Malchus, the high priest's servant, cut off his ear. Yeah. (laughs) It was this same Peter who the Apostle Paul had to call out publicly because Peter was, was acting one way around the Gentiles and another way uh, around the Jews, and, and he was causing confusion in the early church, and he was, he was painting this, this kind of hypocritical picture. Paul had to call him out. We read about that in the book of Galatians. So Peter, with all his apostolic authority, he writes two letters uh, that we have in the canon of Scripture, possibly more, but two are in the canon of Scripture. That would be First Peter and Second Peter. And First Peter is written to Jewish believers who have come out of Judaism into a life 
of saving faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Acts uh, chapter 8, verse 1, about the, the murder of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Luke writes, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So those who were responsible, uh, humanly speaking, for the crucifixion of Jesus were still alive and well at the time that was written. And the result was, uh, was really hard times for those who, uh, so for these new believers. But in the providence of God, these scattered, uh, persecuted believers brought with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And churches began to form across the Roman Empire. The book of 1 Peter was written as a letter of encouragement to these persecuted Christians. We read in Acts chapter 5 of how the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel. And Peter, in bold uh, Peter fashion, Proclaim Christ to the high priests and Sadducees, essentially uh, signing his death warrant. Uh, he wasn't killed that day. He was uh, merely beaten. But he was ultimately crucified in 64 AD for his allegiance to Jesus Christ. So Peter was familiar with what it meant to be a Christian, he was familiar with what it meant to suffer as a Christian. And it's consistent with Peter's character to utilize this tool of, of reminding, reminding his readers of the truths of the gospel as a way of keeping their present circumstances in proper perspective. We read in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 12 through 15, he writes, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right, as long as I am in this body, to, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to recall these things. So that brings us to our text for this morning. Now I'm going to read. It, I'm going to read our text again. And what I want you, I want you to listen for how Peter is urging these persecuted Christians to move beyond focusing on the present circumstances, to focus on the God who is behind the circumstances. Okay, so uh, let's read again. First Peter one. 3 through 9. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to, be, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, 
Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So our first point today is God's election of his children should result in a living hope. And that's verse 3 through 5. Now, I don't intend for this to be a full-blown defense of the doctrine of election. We here at Flagstaff Christian Fellowship hold to Reformed theology because we see that is what the Bible teaches. Dave Barry didn't invent it. Steve Cole didn't invent it. John Calvin didn't invent it. There are words and phrases throughout Scripture, Old and New Testaments, uh, such as uh, chosen, uh, elect, predestined, uh, before the foundation of the world. And these support the idea that if someone is a believer, that is an act of a sovereign God. As is written, for instance, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1.4, where Paul writes, For we know, brothers, loved of God, that, that he has chosen you. Or uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 5, where Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And then moving down to uh, chapter 8 of Ephesians 2, he writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Or if time permitted, we could read uh, Romans 9, or we could read the whole Old Testament that revolves around the idea that if uh, that God made the Israelites a people and he chose them over all the other peoples to be his chosen people, our website has a catalog of sermons that go deeper into the doctrine of election. If you uh, desire to uh, dig deeper into that, I encourage you to do so. But here in 1 Peter, in a, in a very uh, efficient use of words, Peter, in these opening verses of 1 Peter, he doesn't teach necessarily on the doctrine of election. Rather, he assumes it. He assumes that the recipients of this letter uh, know that they are the elect of God. He uses the phrase elect exiles in verse 1. He uses uh, foreknowledge of God in verse 2. He says that God has, uh, quote, caused them to be born again in verse 3. So incorporated in this doctrine of election is the doctrine of eternal security as well. This is the teaching that, that says that those who are chosen before the foundation of the world are kept. 
kept as one of God's children by the sustaining power of God himself. We read that in John 10, verse 28 through 30, where Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Or we read also in Romans 8, 37 through 39, where Paul says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, Peter, Peter is reminding these, these persecuted Christians of the doctrine of election with the desired outcome of giving them hope giving them hope in the middle of their trials. He's telling them not to forget that God chose them. And bound up in that truth is the fact that God will keep them till the end, regardless of the circumstances. I think it is uh, too easy for us to, to twist this doctrine of election we can and we do, I'm guilty of it, use the doctrine of election sometimes to, uh, to maybe win a theological argument, especially with someone who uh, holds a different understanding, theological understanding of the Bible. But Peter here, is, he's reminding us that having hearts and minds fixed on the truths of scripture regarding the doctrine of election, it's meant to give us hope. It's meant to give us hope when we're called to endure trials. Because it's in those moments when the heat is, is hotter than we'd like, that's when we are most prone to thinking that God's forgotten about us. Now Peter is describing hope. Now, biblical hope has at its, at its foundation faith in God and faith in his promises. Faith in God and faith in his promises. Biblical hope does not carry any doubt. Biblical hope is that sure foundation upon which we base our lives, believing that God always keeps his promises. Biblical hope has a future focus, a future trust that is based on God's past performance and his past fidelity to his promises. So Peter refers to it as a living hope in verse 3. He's drawing our attention to the fact that the promise of God's sustaining power, it's ours. And it's ours through faith, faith in Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead. Friends, our, our Savior is described in Hebrews 12, 2, 
where the author says, describing Christ, as the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The resurrected Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The power of God displayed at the resurrection of Jesus Christ should be seen as proof positive that Jesus is worthy of trusting, trusting for our ultimate future deliverance when we endure trials. That's why Peter refers to our hope as a living hope. And we see in verse 4, Peter describes our hope as being an inheritance that is being kept and preserved for believers. Well, now, what's an inheritance? An inheritance is a uh, future blessing, a future blessing based on a past promise with ongoing present implications. It's a, it's a future blessing based on a past promise with ongoing present implications. My wife and I have arranged to pass on an inheritance to our children. So technically it's theirs, but it's not yet theirs. And we as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, we live our earthly existence under that same uh, paradigm or that same tension of already but, but not yet. As we have a proper focus on God's eternal security, it has the present result of giving us a living hope to endure any of our present trials. Okay, I want to draw your attention to some of the words that Peter uses in verse 4. He uses the word imperishable, which has connected to it the idea of uh, undecaying or not corruptible or immortal. He also calls our salvation undefiled. Think unsoiled or pure. He also describes it as unfading. Think perpetual. He also describes our salvation as kept in heaven. Think guarded. Again, in verse 5, we see that the key that unlocks the door to the riches of God's eternally saving and earthly sustaining grace is faith. It's faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And bound up in this concept of biblical living hope is that our salvation will not be complete until our death or the future return of Christ. So we should be viewing our present reality in view of the future promise completeness of our salvation. Now in doing so, we need to keep the three um, aspects of salvation in view, which are justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification first. We all, all of us, because of our rebellion to God and our disobedience to his perfect standard, of which none of us could 
ever possibly keep. We deserve to be targets of God's wrath. And that's not subjective, meaning I should be a target if I think my sin is bad enough. That's objective. Objective truth found in Scripture declares that God is just or seen as a perfect judge who needs to punish every sin which are ultimately committed against him and his holiness. But God, but God, in his great mercy, has provided a substitute to where the wrath of God that we deserve is placed on a sacrificial substitute, namely his son, Jesus Christ. And this glorious substitution is claimed for all eternity when God enlightens the heart, a dead heart of a guilty sinner, to recognize his or her sin and trust by faith that your sin debt is placed on the shoulders of Jesus. And God in his goodness then credits the perfection of Jesus to the account of the guilty sinner. We call that imputation. To where God no longer holds that uh, debt of sin over our heads because instead he's placed that burden on his own son when Jesus died on the cross. And in an act that displayed that Jesus beat the curse of death or curse of sin, rather, death, which is the punishment for sin, God resurrected Jesus again on the third day, and in so doing, securing our future resurrection. So justification, it's a legal term, where the gavel of the judge of the universe comes down, and God declares a guilty sinner not guilty. And it happens, happens in a moment. Now, sanctification, now that's that ongoing uh, molding and shaping done by God in the lives of those whom he has elected for salvation for the purpose of conforming that believer more to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, this process, quite frankly, often involves... Um, having to endure trials that we'd rather not go through. Nonetheless, these trials, in the case of recipients of 1 Peter, persecution for their faith, come in many forms and many intensities. But when used by a sovereign God, these, these huge, seemingly catastrophic Trials can be used to grow our faith in Christ as well as those small little niggling day in, day out challenges that we face. And in many cases, those small ones are uh, sometimes harder to deal with and harder to maintain your faith in than the big ones. Peter here is encouraging us to see our present trials in light of our future glorification. Now glorification, that's the ultimate end and completion of our salvation, which involves being given new glorified bodies that are fit to enjoy perfect fellowship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ forever, eternal. Those, those perfect 
resurrected bodies will be forever free from sin or the effects of sin in an environment that is going to be free from sin and the effects of sin. And it's this aspect of a future promised fulfillment of the salvation of God's elect that Peter is reminding us and these persecuted Christians. He wants that to be the focus of our hearts and heads during times of trials. Peter is using the truths of God's election to encourage these discouraged believers. And he's reminding them that the same God who saved them is the same God who's allowing them to experience their present trials. And it's the same God who will ultimately bring his full plan of salvation to completeness in their lives. Which brings us to our second point, which is this, that trials need to be viewed in light of Jesus' future promised return. Trials need to be viewed in light of Jesus' future promised return, which is verses 6 and 7. So in the beginning of verse 6, the, uh, the in this that um, the in this that Peter writes refers to the rejoicing, rejoicing in the sovereign, saving, secure, sustaining power of God promise God that He promises to His elect. I can appreciate verse six because it is very difficult to view our uh, current present trials in view of God's perfect end. It's just hard. The truth of the matter is often we're, we're grieved by the hardships that we need to endure. They're not pleasant. And too often we focus more on the temporal than the eternal. And it helps to make a distinction here between happiness and joy. Those are not the same things. Happiness, that's, that's more of a feeling of, uh, of fleeting satisfaction that depends on my temporary circumstances. It's that, it's that contentment that we find when our immediate situation, our immediate surroundings are agreeable with the way that we think things ought to be going. I put that in quotes. However, joy is different. Joy, it's that deep-seated understanding and that deep-seated recognition that however things are going, God is in control. Joy says, I know from the pages of Scripture that God is a loving God. And even now, that God is orchestrating the events of my life for my ultimate good and His ultimate glory. Joy rests in the knowledge that there's a future promised glorification that is anchored in the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And my faith has been placed in that Jesus. And God's word says that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Amen? Joy believes in the future promise of Romans 8.18 that says, Paul, Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Joy rests in the truths of Romans 8, 29 and 30. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many believers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Joy trusts in 1 Peter 4, 19. That says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, happiness focuses on the here and now. But joy focuses on that living hope that Peter is calling us to. That living hope that is ours. That living hope that is ours in Christ. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we see that we're far more likely to focus on the trials themselves than having the ability to set our attention on the glory that's yet to be revealed. But, but as we maintain a proper perspective, a biblical perspective on the role of trials in the life of a believer, we can gain a better understanding of what God's doing when he calls us to endure suffering or persecution. Peter uses this metaphor of, of testing gold in verse 7. And the means of testing gold is to expose it to excessive heat. That gold is only purified to where the, the impurities are separated from the pure, pure gold through heat. It's not that God's trying to test us by allowing trials in our lives. To see if we're going to Fold, give up, defect from the faith. He's refining us. He's saying, I'm preparing you, Scott. I'm preparing you to be able to better praise me on the back end of all this. Substitute your own name in there. Jesus is coming back. Well, I don't know how that's all going to shake out. I know that by focusing on his promised return and that by rehearsing to ourselves the truth that we are part of that plan and that we will be ultimately and supremely and eternally cared for by the God who spun this universe into existence, by the word of his mouth, that should give us hope. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be glorious when after the pains of this life have gone and we see how our justification and the trials that fueled our sanctification that all led to our ultimate glorification. 
We're going to be able to see and praise Jesus for his goodness for all eternity. And that's the view that Peter is calling his readers and us to keep into proper focus. Which leads us to our third and, and shortest point, which says, by faith, our promised, or rather, by faith, our future completed salvation, it's assured. By faith, our future completed salvation is assured. And that's verses 8 and 9. So we gain some insight as to the nature of faith in verses 8 and 9. I think sometimes we elevate faith in such a way that it sounds more like uh, we are saved by having faith in my faith. When the truth is, we're saved by having faith in a God who made a sacrifice of cosmic proportions as a way of demonstrating his love for mankind when we, in fact, were his enemies. The coming of Jesus Christ demonstrates God's trustworthiness because the whole Old Testament points ahead to the coming of Jesus, points ahead to the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, which was ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. In other words, our faith is only as strong as the object of our faith, namely the triune God himself. And when we take the effort to focus our attention on the security of our salvation, which will not come into full completion until the end of the line, we get a better understanding of the nature of faith, especially in regard to how God uses refining trials in our lives. Verse 8 defines faith as believing in God and his sovereign goodness even though we can't see him. Or at times we cannot see the goodness of what he's doing in our lives. We sometimes use the phrase, uh, seeing is believing. I would encourage you to repent of that. It's not biblical. That runs contrary to what the Bible teaches about faith in the life of a believer. Hebrews 11.1, 1, the author says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. At its core of what faith is, is to believe in something that we can't see. And not only believe but be willing to act on that belief even though we can't see it. I'll say that again. Not only believe, but be willing to act on that belief in that which is unseen. Hebrews 11 uh, gives us, it's a great chapter, how Old Testament saints were saved by faith faith in a Jesus that was up to that point in redemptive history only a distant promise. We see the examples of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, so on. Even somewhere you're kind of confused why their names are in there. But all of them acted on their belief, acted on their belief or trust or faith merely on the basis of the trustworthiness of the object of their faith. God himself. Saving faith shows itself by trusting 
God on the basis of trusting his promises. And in the case of trusting God in the midst of trials or suffering, we need to see our suffering through the lenses of God's promises. We've got to see our suffering through the lenses of God's promises. In the case of 1 Peter, the promise that we're called to claim during times of trial is that God's eternal security for those whom he has chosen for salvation is indeed secure. We need to be willing to accept that the trustworthiness of God doesn't lie in how we perceive our present circumstances. Rather, God's trustworthiness lies in his ultimate character that we see revealed in the pages of the Old and the New Testament. We see him being a God who keeps his covenant promises even when it looks like he's forgotten about us. Verse 9 gives us the reason that we can and should have joy in the face of trials. Please, I'm paraphrasing, please, Peter writes, don't forget that there's a goal at the end of the road marked with suffering, namely the salvation of your souls. And by fixing your hearts on the promise of the glory of our salvation that is yet to come, we maintain that proper perspective when we're called to endure trials. So let me just give you, uh, let's give us four applications, ways that we can put this into practice in our lives. These are just four suggestions. The first one might be the most important. Repent, believe, and trust in the gospel. Repent, believe, and trust in the gospel. Although we see how God in his sovereignty calls, draw, uh, draws lost sinners to himself, he clearly works through the hearing of his word. Romans 10, 17 so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Friends, the Bible describes God as being a God who must punish every sin of which we are all guilty. There's only two camps described in the Bible. One is those whose sin debt has been paid through faith in, in, in Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection as full and adequate payment for their sins. For those in this camp, God says, your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. But for those who are trusting in something other than the blood of Jesus Christ to restore that broken relationship, that was shattered, relationship with God, that was shattered because of our sin. The Bible says the price for that rebellion still rests on your shoulders. The sin debt still needs to be paid, and it ultimately will be paid by what the Bible describes as an eternal separation from God in hell. It's 18 years ago next month, August, I can, I can remember it like it's yesterday. I didn't know any 
Christian talk. I didn't know any Christian lingo. I didn't know the doctrines of God's word that I love today. I just can remember clearly saying, God, if you are real, I don't think you're pleased with me because I've done wrong things. I want you to hear Jesus' words in Mark 1, 13. It says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's pretty simple. Repent and believe the gospel. To repent is to acknowledge that you've sinned and thus deserve to be an object of God's wrath. But not only acknowledge it, but to action, turn from that sin and turn to Christ. It's not just a mental ascent. It's, it's a life change fueled by the Holy Spirit. And to believe is to accept what you've heard today as being true because it's written in the Bible. And not to trust in your own works to get right with God, but rather to believe that a loving God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to take the punishment that you deserve as a perfect substitute. Uh, if you want to hear more about this, I suggest grabbing someone after church. Maybe someone who's got a Bible under their arm. Or find me or find one of the elders. be happy to talk to you more about that. Application number two would be fix your hearts and heads on God's promises before those trials come. May I suggest reading and meditating on scriptures that display the promises that are tied to the doctrine of election? Uh, I can suggest reading. I even would challenge you to memorize. Perhaps John chapter 10 might be a good place to start or Romans chapter 8. And yes, you actually can memorize an entire chapter. I, I say that kind of jokingly, but it's, it's a little intimidating, but it's totally doable. And it's an excellent tool used in the hands of God when we're challenged. I taught middle schoolers for years, and I asked them the question of whether it would be easier to learn how to change a tire in your driveway or on the side of I-40 at night, it's raining, Cars are coming by. The answer is pretty obvious. And then I'd teach them how to change a tire when there's no pressure on them. The same holds true for us in our Christian life. By planting those promises in our hearts before there comes the temptation to doubt them, we are setting ourselves up to be in a better position to trust in the Lord's goodness when that trials or persecution comes. Three, embrace life in a local church. Embrace life in a local church. We're called, people, as fellow recipients of God's amazing grace to bear one another's burdens. Life in a local church should be one of looking for those opportunities to remind each other of the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we live in a broken world. I'm seeing faces in this room. Faces that I know have, have issues going on in their lives. 
We have uh, grown children that have walked away from Jesus. We have uh, marriages that are uh, being bombarded, strained by, by challenges within and, and challenges without. We have lost loved ones where if we were to describe it, we'd say that that happened uh, before their time. We have parents who seems like they've abandoned us. And there's a multitude of unspoken challenges that we all just have. Or maybe things seem to be going all right right now. Maybe uh, the sun's shining down. But we need to be looking for these opportunities to remind each other and to be reminded, both of which require humility, of the glories that await those who are God's adopted children through faith in Christ. And for our fourth application, rounding this out, remember that faith is tested through trials. Faith, Our faith is tested through trials. Friends, we need to have a right understanding of God's use of trials in our lives. When Peter refers to trials being used by God to test one's faith, it doesn't refer to God putting us into circumstances uh, to see if we're going to give up, crack, fold. As I said, he's refining us. He's refining our faith as gold is refined in the fire to, to the end of having a finished product that is free from contaminants. We need to have a right understanding of the security of our salvation. Security cannot be removed for those who are called according to his purpose. The hotter the fire is, the greater the temptation is to forget these truths. So let us take up the charge to remind each other of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Especially the truth that the best is yet to come. So let me just finish. I'm just going to read uh, a portion of Lamentations, chapter 3, where the weeping prophet Jeremiah laments over God's uh, judgment, coming judgment against the rebellious Israel. Jeremiah is the bearer of bad news that the nation will be conquered and carried away um, to captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And amidst the... Um, the storm of being challenged to have a long-term focus, he gives these words of hope. He writes in Lamentations 3, 16 through 26, He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good 
to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Amen. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we often are like that boy's father who was healed by Jesus, who said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Father, give us hearts of recollection of your promises when challenged. Let us, Father, look for ways to remind each other of the truths of the gospel. And we thank you that though this world is often characterized by circumstances that are undesirable, as we see it, they are crafted by you to point us to an eternal living hope that is secure and kept in Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.